From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's new state historian is focused on the history that hasn't been told about public lands. A sign put up a long time ago, perhaps with with well-meaning intentions, nevertheless perpetuates some of the myths of of people of color in the park, that they're only there in the past, that there's no connection between white people coming and making a park and Native people having to leave. Then, choosing what historic places to preserve and why continues to evolve. Behind all these sites that we're trying to work with to save, there are many wonderful stories and they're very powerful when they're told in the voices of the people who most relate to them. And later, celebrating the work of an indigenous artist in Littleton. I'm J.C. Futrell, and we donated our car to Colorado Public Radio. My family and I love CPR. That's where we get our news, our entertainment, and we love the local stories. It's been a dream of ours for years to be able to donate a car. We uh, totally recommend it for anyone else to do. It took just a few days between submitting online and having the tow guy come and take our vehicle away. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Colorado's public lands are renowned for their beauty and for the riches they contain. But to hear the new state historian tell it, the stories of people who've lived and worked on those lands for centuries are often overlooked, especially the stories of people of color. I'm joined now by state historian Jared Orsi. He's a professor at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. Jared, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Chandra. So give me an example of a piece of Colorado history you think most people aren't aware of or don't know enough about. Well, I would love for Coloradans to know about Lincoln Hills, which was a resort in the mountains south of Nederland. It was founded by black Denverites in the 1920s, and it lasted um, and was uh, popular and open all the way into the 1960s. This was a place where the uh, members of the small but growing black middle class in Denver could go and recreate in the Colorado mountains. It was a place where you could go for a day or a weekend or a short vacation. You could also buy property and build a cabin there. And it was founded uh, partly because there weren't a lot of other mountain recreational opportunities available to Denver's black community at the time. In fact, uh, one of the founders uh, wrote in one of the documents about the founding uh, that uh, African-Americans in Denver didn't feel comfortable in places like Estes Park. Mm -hmm. And so very explicitly referring to the one of Colorado's leading tourist destinations at the time, Rocky Mountain National Park. Estes Park is the gateway to Rocky Mountain. And uh, Lincoln Hills was kind of an alternative. Yeah, I actually wrote a piece for NPR's website. Uh, I think it's been, I think it was in 2021, about that very issue about African Americans not, and people of color in general, not feeling welcome in public mm-hmm. lands. And what do you make of that? Well, I think that it's part of the founding legacies of America's public lands, that in many ways they were founded on the idea that they would cater to white uh, recreationalists. 
So in order to have public lands, uh, the people who were living on them had to be removed, right? So before you could have empty wilderness, empty of people, you had to take the Native Americans who lived on those lands out of them. The early founding of national parks, uh, sometimes national parks were uh, segregated, especially in the American South. Um, the segregation was a little bit more uh, de facto in places like Colorado. But you can imagine um, uh, a person from Denver uh, coming from a neighborhood like Five Points or something mm -hmm. like that, going to Estes Park and seeing lots of wealthy uh, mm. white people in the hotels and restaurants and black people serving them. Um, and it's not a welcoming place. Yeah, and now there's a lot of organizations that have been promoting more diversity in nature. You have Black Girls Hike. Uh, locally, there's Vibe Tribe Adventures, Brown Girls Climb. And, you know, so many organizations are really trying to, like, hone in on that issue. Do you think all this this comfort level is changing? Yes, I would say that it is changing, but it has not changed completely or enough, hence the need for organizations like Brown Girls Climb and Black Girls Hike. So one of the things that emerges in the 1920s among um, uh, stewards of outdoor recreation spaces is the idea that people of color don't want to be in the great outdoors. That's a persistent, I think, uh, myth in American society that people of color don't want to do these things. Uh, Lincoln Hills is a great example that gives evidence that they do. And if you look at the photographs, especially from the 1920s and early 1930s, Denver Public Library has great photographs online. You look at the photographs of uh, young teenage girls uh, who are at camp, um, going to camp at Lincoln Hills, and they're frolicking in the water, and they are just having a great time. And uh, when I look at those documents, you can't tell me that black people in the 1920s or today don't want to be outdoors. And to your point, uh, a lot of activities that we all partake in, whether it's skiing or hiking, tends to be generational. If your parents took you hiking or took you skiing. And so obviously history would play a role in that because if you could not go <laughs> and your parents did not necessarily have that habit. And so, um, you know, to your point, you know, maybe it is about exposure and like you said, make, just creating spaces to feel more welcome. And all Americans really ought to have access to that. If you go back to 1865, uh, Frederick Law Olmsted, famous for designing, being the designer of New York's uh, Central Park, writes, he's also one of the early commissioners of Yosemite, and he writes a report that says that outdoor uh, experiences and getting to experience the beauty of the outdoors is a human right, and he connects it to the Declaration of Independence wow. um, as one of the unalienable rights that Jefferson uh, famously talked about. Well, what role do you think things like the programming at the parks, like the exhibits or what is promoted in the signage, you know, mm -hmm. maybe everything only being in English, things like that. What role do you think that plays? The initial efforts to uh, make parks into what Carolyn Finney calls white spaces mm. um, perhaps was, um, it was a product of its time, but then things like programming and interpretation extend that thinking into the present when exclusionary 
ordinary practices like today may be less acceptable, but park signage endures. So let me give you one example here. The Holsworth Ranch at on the east side, excuse me, the west side of the park in the Kawanichi Valley is a wonderful example of historic preservation in the national parks. It enables visitors to walk through a historic dude ranch. There's an interpretive sign at the beginning of the pathway that leads you out there. And that sign has two paragraphs, each of which are two or three sentences long. Mm-hmm. And the first paragraph is a, uh, uh, a reference to a nearby miner's cabin and it documents uh, one of the first settlers, white settlers to come into the valley. Uh, the second paragraph says that white settlers weren't the first people here and that native peoples, uh, specifically the Ute and Arapaho, had long predated them. The paragraph finishes by saying they once called this home. And yet the connection between the coming of the settlers and the fact that Native peoples are no longer here, that causal story between white settlers coming and Native peoples no longer being able to live live there, that story is overlooked on the sign. A sign put up a long time ago, perhaps with, with well-meaning att- intentions, nevertheless perpetuates some of the myths uh, of people of color in the park, that they're only there in the past, that there's no connection between white people coming and making a park and Native people having to leave. Now, earlier you mentioned Carolyn Finney. Yeah. Is that a historian? Car- Carolyn Finney is a geographer. She's the author of a wonderful book called Black Faces, White Spaces. And this book uh, documents the absence of people of color from public spaces, and then tries to offer some explanations for why that is. Things that you and I spoke about earlier, about generational differences, um, about uh, the subtle cues, um, like interpretive signs like the one I just described, uh, how they make these spaces uh, feel white, even Mm. in the absence of deliberate segregation. Absolutely. You know, sometimes it's just an atmosphere and, um, you know, it's you can tell maybe when you feel maybe not an inclusive atmosphere. Maybe there's just that sense when you get there. Yeah. So sometimes it seems like the history we hear about in Colorado often starts with pioneers and wagon trains and and that there's not enough attention, as you just alluded to, um, for instance, to the indigenous people and who were here thousands of year, years before that. What's your take on that? I would like uh, Coloradans today to think of themselves as marching at the end of a very long parade of humanity that has come to Colorado. So the human presence in Colorado dates back uh, roughly 13,000 years. The very first people who came into North America began to spread out across North America. And one of the avenues that they used to penetrate the interior of the continent was right here along the Front Range. They liked the Front Range for a lot of the same reasons that that we do. It was a ecologically and geographically diverse place. And so if you travel, say, 30, 40 miles east to west, you can access all kinds of different ecosystems. We do that today on a weekend when we take a ski trip. Uh, they did that on a seasonal basis as well, migrating from higher to lower elevations, following game, accessing different uh, plant communities and ecosystems. Um, so it was a good place to live, trade, travel, uh, do business, uh, just like the Front Range is for Coloradans today. 
Public lands as a specialty for a historian seems pretty fascinating. So how does that come together for you? I think that public lands gets at a lot of issues like race, which we've been talking about, Mm -hmm. that are central to all of U.S. history. And so as a U.S. historian, I'm interested in public lands because I can get a look at some of those issues in interesting ways. The other thing is that the Park Service was founded with what's called the dual mission. And one of the things it's supposed to do is to promote enjoyment of America's public lands. Mm -hmm. But the other thing it's supposed to do is to conserve the wildlife and scenery. And then the, 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 the piece of legislation adds objects of scientific and historical interest. And so the Park Service is one of its missions is to preserve history. And in fact, I would argue that Americans learn more of their history from the National Park Service than they do from Mm. any other single institution. And so as a historian, I'm interested both in that heritage that the parks are directed to conserve, but I'm also interested in the park as an institution that is effectively a historian. What you just stated is a perfect segue into my next question. So Americans seem to have kind of a love-hate relationship with public lands. They enjoy recreation, but sometimes they're, how do I put it, not so kind to the land that they purport to love. What do you say about that? Well, let's move from national parks, which I've been talking about here mostly today. When you, you look at national at public lands broadly, you see that there are so many different uses for them. Recreation, which we've been talking about this morning, is one of them. Environmental conservation is another one, but so is making a living. So is ranching Mm -hmm. and mining and the timber industry and uh, energy production. And I think that Americans have this love-hate relationship with their public lands in part because there are so many uses. They're intended for the benefit of the public, but different publics see different uses for those lands. So there's this tension between land as a resource and land that needs preserving. And what are your thoughts about how that's played out in Colorado history? Well, one thing I would like us to think about is is not to separate land as resource from land as uh, environmental preservation or outdoor recreation. And let me give you one example of this. Drive your car up Trail Ridge Road in Rocky Mountain National Park. You might be thinking that you're in a land that is a wilderness that is being preserved. The scenery is spectacular. You're having a good time in, with your kids in the backseat or whatever. <laughs> and But I also want people who do that to think about the petroleum in their car, the gasoline in their car, the plastics that come from their outdoor hiking gear, the resource development of land enables recreation and environmental preservation in other places. Where does climate change fit into all of this? 
climate change is a global phenomenon, and it's much larger than the decisions that land stewards in Colorado can make. Now, one thing that land managers can do that can have a big uh, impact on climate change is educational, to make visible to the public mm -hmm. the impact of climate change on the lands that they are enjoying. And maybe visitors then leave the park a little bit more concerned and willing to protect the place that they've just loved that afternoon. Now let's turn to another figure in Colorado history, Catherine Lee Bates, who wrote the song America the Beautiful after she was inspired by Pike's Peak. First off, what does that song tell us about America during that time? Well, it tells us that Americans were coming to appreciate their landscapes as part of what made the nation great. And if you think about 1893, the year that she wrote that poem that later was set to music and became the, the patriotic hymn, America the Beautiful, mm -hmm. that many of us love to sing today. 1893 was a time when Americans were beginning to imagine themselves taking their place among the great nations of the world, which at that time for them mostly mm -hmm. meant European nations. What made European nations great? Well, antiquity, Roman ruins, old cathedrals, centuries of great literature and art, great political thinking and philosophy. But America, not even much more than 100 years old. What could this young upstart nation possibly have that was valuable? And landscape, wild, scenic, beautiful lands became America's antiquity. And so Catherine Lee Bates, when she writes, Oh, Beautiful for Spacious Skies, and when she praises Pike's Peak, Purple Mountain Majesties, mm. she is expressing this appreciation that Americans are beginning to develop in order to claim greatness for the nation. So essentially, she's tying landscape and to a certain extent, public lands to American patriotism. America is great because we have these wide open, scenic, amazing spaces. Pikes Peak is what inspires her to write that. Well, Colorado is definitely the place for all of that. So we talked about the first verse. Give us a little insight about the second verse. It talks about pilgrims being beating a path through the wilderness and reflects the view of the emptiness of the continent. Yeah. So it's a much less commonly sung verse, but it reflects a common idea at the time among white Americans that the continent was therefore American taking. And so this second verse connects the beauty and patriotism of American landscapes in the first verse. It connects it to the legitimacy of removing Native peoples from their land. She was an English professor in the East. And yes. She came to Colorado to teach summer school. Yes. So she's a... English professor at Wellesley College in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and she comes to the, to Colorado for the summer to teach summer school at Colorado College. Mm -hmm. And one day, she and some of her friends decide to hire a guide who hauls them most of the way up to Pikes Peak uh, in a wagon, and then they switch um, 
two mules and they go the rest of the way. And she's up there and the, the scene is just breathtaking. And that's where some of the terms from that song that we know, Purple Mountain Majesties, Above the Fruited Plain, those kinds of things, they come from her inspiration on that day. And Bates also had a very uh, interesting backstory in her personal life. Yes. So Bates is somebody that we would probably recognize today as a lesbian. That was not a term that was commonly mm-hmm. used at the time. And one of the interesting things about Bates and this part of her backstory is that in some ways her celebration of American beauty and the implicit lamentation that that carries of the way industrialization had chewed up forests and ripped ore out of Colorado hillsides and things like that, that industrialization enabled her to live the white life the way she did. She comes from an agricultural family. In the early uh, and mid-19th century when she was born, Farm families um, were heterosexual family units in which everybody labored to support the family. So it was very difficult to pursue a social and sexual life for yourself outside of a heterosexual family unit in agrarian America. But industrialization begins to change all that. Individuals can go to work in America's cities and they can earn wages and then they can use those wages to pay for the things that they don't produce themselves. And so Catherine Lee Bates is an example of this. She works at a college, she earns wages, she's economically independent of her family, and that enables her to make choices that perhaps her mother or grandmother would not have had available to them. So as we close, what are your big plans to raise awareness that we've obviously covered in this interview? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for um, having me on your radio show, radio show, because that's one of the ways that I can um, do this. I also am planning on working with uh, with History Colorado to try to incorporate real historical research and interpretation projects that need to be done into my classroom. My students are really the best way that I have the opportunity to share Colorado's heritage and to help them see all of it. Because I think that's one of the most important things, whether it's ranchers in Colorado or 19th century uh, lesbian women or the first indigenous inhabitants of the land or current indigenous people who call Colorado home, I think the most important thing is to enable them to be seen. And I hope my class will be able to do some of that. Yes. And of course, this is generational. You need the younger generation to carry the torch and to continue that work while beyond your tenure. (laughs) Absolutely. And the wonderful students at Colorado State University give me lots of optimism about future generations. Well, it's clear that you enjoy this work. Clear, clear, clear. Jared, thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you for having me on the program, Chandra. Jared Orsi became Colorado State Historian on August 1st. He'll hold that post for a year. Orsi is a professor of history and director of the Public Lands History Center at Colorado State University. After the break, we take a closer look at the renaissance of historic preservation in Colorado. 
I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado Matters is live in Grand Junction for the next Turn the Page, a conversation with nature and adventure writer Craig Childs. His latest book contemplates the beauty and meaning of rock art on the caves, canyons, and cliffs of the Colorado Plateau. When you see images painted or pecked on stone, you're seeing the original inhabitants. And when you start looking around, you realize they're everywhere. Pick up a copy of Tracing Time and join Colorado Matters September 6th in Grand Junction. Free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. Before the break, we heard from the new state historian, Jared Orsi, about working to elevate forgotten history on public lands. Historic preservation itself is changing, choosing what to save and why. Colorado's Most Endangered Places list marks its 25th anniversary this year. It's highlighting sites that reflect the heritage of Black, Indigenous, and people of color, as well as rural life. Kim Grant directs the effort. He spoke with my co-host Ryan Warner in February. First off, talk just a little bit about this kind of reckoning going on in historic preservation. Uh, how do you how do you feel it and see it in your own circles? Well, I think it's part of a larger national conversation going on around the issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, the preservation community has been more and more attentive to that. And while we have worked with a number of sites um, reflecting, you know, more diverse heritage and history over the years, you know, we realize that it's time to really make a push for this because there's many great stories and we need to let folks tell their own story too. So behind all these great sites that we're trying to work with to save, there are many wonderful stories and they're very powerful when they're told in the voices of the people who you know, who most uh, relate to them. The Endangered Places Program has listed 130 historic sites in Colorado in the past quarter century. 54 have been declared saved. That's about 42 Mm percent. Is that a good track record? Yes, it is a good track record because none of these sites are easy when we get involved with them. Um, by definition, they're threatened or endangered, in some cases, pretty dilapidated condition. And so it's it's a bit of a long-term endeavor for certain sites. Um, Very rarely are they turned around very quickly, and it it takes some partnerships in the community, and it takes resources, and it often uh, takes some time to do that. So that's one of the things that we've learned over the last 25 years, is that you have to kind of take a long-term perspective on me. All right. In in these 25 years, name a site or two that has been spared. And uh, maybe that's like picking a favorite child. <laughs> well, there's a lot of them on the list. Um, one of mine that has particular resonance for me is, is one we announced this year, which I know uh, we've talked about before, which is Denver Tramway Streetcar number 0.04. And that was an eight or 10 year labor of love. And it truly was in a ruinous state. And it was the very last streetcar to run on the Denver uh, tramway system in revenue service uh, right before they shut down the system in in 1950. And it's not one that you uh, sort of restore in a pristine way, because one of the interesting things about this streetcar is that it also went to Leiden, where the coal mines were that powered the tramway system. And so coal miners would ride it to work and, and back home. 
And, you know, it was a pretty um, utilitarian kind of streetcar and not quite as beautifully restored as, as a similar streetcar is in Lakewood. Uh, where had it been and where is it now? It was on a storage lot for nearly 20 years. And then we moved it up to a really interesting site outside of Cheyenne that was an old missile site. Not the silos that go down into the ground, but a shed is part of a complex of three of them where the old Atlas missiles um, were stationed. Hmm. And uh, Michael Pinnell, the contractor, rents space there and works on uh, railroad cars there. And it's there right now awaiting its final um, transport back to Arvada to be displayed in Old Town. In Old Town, Arvada. Okay. Which Mm -hmm. has recently been reconnected to the metro with its own train. Yeah. Um, Another site that we're working on, making some progress on, is the adobe potato barn at the Garcia Ranch in in the San Luis Valley. And we've got some grant funding in place to work on that, and we're real excited about that. And so this is what, a barn that would have stored picked potatoes? Yes. Yes. And it's climate controlled because it was adobe with a double walled structure that created an air pocket that added to the insulation, created perfect conditions for storing potatoes. Ha! Without actual refrigeration. Yeah. Cool. Okay, let's talk about the sites, at least some of them, that you're highlighting on this year's Endangered Mm -hmm. Places list. One of them we've talked about before on Colorado Matters, that's Deerfield in Weld County, spelled D-E-A-R because the land was so dear to those who owned it. A farming community on the plains in the early 1900s that really embodied the dreams of the black folks who homesteaded there. People were very hopeful, and they really felt like they could get away from the oppression. They really felt like Deerfield had potential. That's Terry Nelson from Denver's Blair Caldwell African American Research Library in the documentary Remnants of a Dream. There's now an effort in Congress led by Colorado Representatives Jonah Goose and Ken Buck. They've co-sponsored a bill to add Deerfield to the national park system. Uh, What stands out to you about the story of Deerfield? Deerfield may be um, certainly the most important site of its type in Colorado and one of the most important west of the Mississippi. Um, There's really only three buildings left at Deerfield, but it really embodied the notion that if Black people were able to own land and and build homes, they would gain independence and be able to pass assets on to their heirs and and, uh, be successful. And unfortunately, things like the Dust Bowl intervened and caused the place to slowly vanish over time. But through the efforts of uh, the Black America West Museum and a couple of professors at the University of Northern Colorado and the Deerfield Dream Project, They have made um, significant progress recently and just got a $498,000 National Park Service grant from the African-American Civil Rights Program. And that will help them with the restoration of the filling station. It's a huge, huge leap forward. The filling station. So there was a gas station there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In addition to many other businesses, I believe. Yeah, there were churches. There was a lunchroom, a blacksmith shop several homes and several farms kind of in and around the periphery. And this was a site that that was really threatened a few years ago by uh, a developer who wanted to build modular homes, including in some areas in the National Register District. 
but there was a land swap that was engineered to protect the core area of Deerfield from that development. And that was another important milestone. Which shows you that sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back, or one step back and three steps forward. Um, Yes. Another place you've declared endangered is the Iglesia de San Antonio, Tiffany Catholic Church in southern La Plata County, so southwestern Colorado. Tell us about this church's significance. This church represents the uh, early Hispano settlement of the uh, riverine valleys in the area along the old Denver and Rio Grande uh, railroad line that heads to Durango. And it was built lovingly by the local people using local materials, adobe and stucco. And it's a charming little building in the town of Tiffany, but there's really little of anything left in the town. However, there's an annual mass that's held there each year. And the local caretakers got it listed on the endangered places a couple of years ago. And we successfully uh, acquired a grant to do a structural and engineering assessment and create a preservation plan for it. So we now have a pretty good idea on a path forward to do this uh, restoration project in uh, stages. Uh, It's a beautiful little building. It's in very rough shape on the outside, but the inside's in in pretty good condition. And uh, it's just a wonderful little uh, building that we hope in in a year or two to have fully uh, restored. Oh, I'm I'm so delighted to have learned about Tiffany, Colorado. I guess I'm a little embarrassed I didn't know about it. Uh, But but going to Mass there, um, it must be quite an intimate experience. It is, and there's a huge turnout every year. Um, The building's actually owned by the Archdiocese of Pueblo, and when the congregation uh, closed officially, uh, the folks that went there went to the nearby Catholic Church in Ignacio, and um, both of those entities are interested in supporting this project as we move forward. Yeah, I imagine that buy-in is really important with these projects. Not all your endangered places are positive history. Boarding schools used to assimilate indigenous children have made headlines in the past year after a mass grave was found at a school in Canada. Uh, That prompted U.S. officials to look at the legacy of these types of schools in this country. So talk about the Southern Ute boarding school campus in Ignacio. You've mentioned Ignacio already. Why is that boarding school at risk? It is one of the most intact boarding school campuses in the United States, and it's really the only one that is intact in that way in Colorado. And the Southern Ute Tribe has surveyed tribal membership to determine what to do with the buildings. There's really three primary buildings and then uh, a veterans memorial on this campus. Hmm. And inside them, there are also some spectacular WPA-era murals done by tribal member Sam Ray in about 1936 or so. So there's a a real awareness on the part of the tribe that it's a real important resource, and it's also an opportunity to tell their story about this really difficult period in American history. And it it was a period characterized really by a, a genocidal campaign to forcibly assimilate Native Americans, indigenous people into European American culture, and really with disastrous results that that the tribe is still dealing with today. Yeah, there's something almost twisted about the thought that there are murals by an indigenous person 
in a school meant to subjugate them. That, that is a lot to unpack. Well, one of the key things that happened, though, was at a certain point in history, uh, the federal government began to realize that this effort wasn't working. And um, they slowly switched gears a little bit and, and began to uh, allow the students and, and the tribe to reclaim some of this history. And the repainting of those murals was, was part of that effort. Oh, fascinating. Uh, and indeed, this is a living example of how the structures can help continue to tell a story and, and really become lessons for future generations. Uh, two, two other locations of note on this year's Endangered Places list in Colorado. A grocery store in Grand Junction is at the center of a thriving Italian-American community there. Uh, it has a new owner who plans to preserve the work of Italian stonemasons from 1909. Mm-hmm. The Union Pacific Pump House on the other side of the state in Kit Carson from the late 1870s. Uh, this is the last one of its kind in Colorado. Is it, I don't know, like a real soul-searching to come up with the list and all of the things you might not be able to put on it in any given year? Yes, it's it's definitely a challenge. I mean, we've had over 600 sites nominated in 25 years, and only 130 made the list. But this year, because it was our 25th anniversary, we thought that was a good time to kind of take stock and calibrate and... Um, maybe focus on these five that we just talked about that have been on the list for a while and try to um, keep the momentum going or jumpstart them. In some cases. Kim, thank you so much for being with us. Sure. Thank you. Always great to talk with you. Kim Grant directs Colorado's Most Endangered Places list, a project of Colorado Preservation, Inc. He spoke with my co-host Ryan Warner in February. You can nominate a place to save for next year's list. There's just one week left to submit a suggestion. The deadline is next Monday, August 22nd. Littleton, Colorado is built on ancestral lands used by the Ute, Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Kiowa people. The city was named after Richard Sullivan Little of New Hampshire. It began as a farming town feeding the Denver area during the 1859 gold rush. But now a new exhibit in the city is celebrating the early work of one Native artist. Here's CPR's Eden Lane. Denver artist Danielle Seawalker's work is unmistakable. Her paintings, many of them portraits with faceless subjects, many with long, winding braids, comment on modern life for Native people subjected to stereotypes and colonial patriarchy. Seawalker experiments with materials and combines traditional and modern techniques, but centers her own tribal heritage. Seawalker is Lakota and an enrolled citizen of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. I really um, don't want to, you know, culturally appropriate from one tribe that I don't belong to or I don't know. And, um, you know, I think uh, when you think of cultural appropriation, it's maybe a non-native mimicking or doing something that is native. But even tribe to tribe can be culturally appropriative. And so I'm really respectful about that and, and aware. And I just stick to my Lakota um, patterns, colors, traditions, things that I know and that I feel comfortable doing. Seawalker's new show, titled Shke, It Is Said, uses the 1,800 square feet of the Changing Gallery at the Littleton Museum to great effect. For her, 
giving respect to the hundreds of different Native tribes and their differences is key. I always kind of say it, you know, people sort of lump Native American as one thing, but it's it's almost saying like all Europeans are the same. But no, there's there's French, there's German, you know, there's all these different um, languages and traditions and practices and histories. And it's the same with different Indigenous tribes. For Littleton Museum curator of patron engagement Moira Casey, the chance to bring Seawalker's work to the city was not one she would miss. It's the first time we're ever showing a, a contemporary Indigenous artist. I have been following Danielle Seawalker um, on Instagram for quite some time. I had read um, a really interesting blog post on the Denver Art Museum's website about her work. Casey says they want to offer visitors a diversity of subject matter, media type, and background of artists. Seawalker herself has been creating for a long time in a variety of different media. She also creates beadwork and murals and is an accomplished writer. And she's been working on a project documenting the lives of Native people in the 21st century since 2013. But it wasn't until the pandemic hit in 2020 that Seawalker really started showcasing her painting. So, you know, 2020 was a crazy year for everybody. And I, you know, was ready and willing to kind of break out of my bubble and just try some new things. Seawalker says her approach to her work throughout her career has been to focus on storytelling. Each piece is very unique in that it does tell a story. You know, there's one, for instance, that's inspired by it's called Unchi, which means grandmother in Lakota. And in my culture, your grandmother is really the 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 knowledge keeper and the person that raises you. Historically and traditionally, the grandma would keep the firstborn and sort of raise that firstborn child, her grandchild, um, to teach the language and the practices and the culture. And so grandmas are so, so important in, in my culture. And so I wanted to honor that because I was really close with my grandma. But she says activism and storytelling often go hand in hand. For instance, she brings the issues of missing and murdered Indigenous women, as well as culturally insensitive mascots, to light through her art. So I'm trying to tap into so many different audiences to sort of educate and storytell and bring awareness through art. So it's sort of what I refer to as artivism, activism. Casey says that sort of blend of work is exactly what she hopes to share with visitors to the Littleton Museum. It's important work, she says, making space for Indigenous artists or BIPOC artists to tell their own stories, especially when traditional American art is often told from a white perspective, and especially when Littleton sits on ancestral Native lands. And so it's just very important, I think, from an art historical perspective to have to have artists that are from those cultures depicting their own way of life and their own culture and excelling in an artistic field both for artivism, you know, for social change, and also just for art in itself, just aesthetically. Danielle Seawalker's exhibit, Shke, it is said, is on view at the Littleton Museum through October 9th. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. When we come back, music rises from the ashes of the Marshall Fire. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The Arikaree River runs out of northeast Colorado into Kansas and cuts the state's lowest elevation, 3,315 feet. It's the highest low spot of any state in the country, higher than the highest points of 18 of them. Flowing from the high plains, the Arikaree River is named for the Arikara, Native Americans whose oral history tells of a long journey crossing canyons, fording streams. With hot summers, cold winters, and sudden outbursts of rain and snow, the High Plains serves up some of Colorado's most severe weather and creates an environment unlike what's downstream the Arikaree River. In fact, scientists call the Arikaree the state's best remaining example of a Great Plains river system with uncommon plants, amphibians, reptiles, and fish. 
like the three-inch-long orange-throat darter at the very western edge of its comfort zone in the lowest spot of Colorado. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Dazzle Jazz in Denver. When the Marshall Fire swept through Louisville last December, it spared Will Shearer's home, but it took away his livelihood. Now, eight months later, he's reopening his violin shop in downtown Louisville, thanks to community support. CPR's Matt Bloom has the story. I think it still sounds good, so you want to buy one? Will Schur is warming up a violin inside his new workshop. It's a cozy 800-square-foot space with hundreds of special tools and rows of instruments stored in racks on the walls. After adjusting a few strings, he tucks a light brown mid-sized violin under his chin and starts to play. It wasn't that long ago that this violin was almost destroyed. It was one of dozens that Schur kept inside a repair shop he ran out of his basement for seven years. Until last December. Schur was out of town for the holidays and watched the Marshall Fire destroy his neighborhood on TV. An absolute catastrophe today in Colorado. The most destructive wildfire in state history burns through Superior and Louisville. You know, we saw the neighborhood basically on fire. Our house was right in the middle of the neighborhood. The fire burned more than a thousand homes and businesses in Boulder County. When Schurer got back in town, he found a surprise. His home was one of the few in his neighborhood still standing. Miraculously, firefighters had saved it. There was the blackened, charred side of the house and the broken windows where you could tell that the, you know, the hose had sprayed into the house. And we're extremely lucky. We're so lucky. But inside, smoke and ash covered everything, including his violin shop. Thankfully, he and a couple friends were able to recover some tools and instruments in a locked closet, including the first violin he ever built back in 2013. We felt this joy, and then we felt, you know, the sadness of losing your stuff. The home was too dangerous for his family to move back in, much less keep the business open. So he started looking for a way to rebuild. But retail space was expensive, and his business was underinsured. Because you run a business and you build a business and you grow a business and you don't always revisit that insurance policy the way you should. When one of Schur's friends heard about the situation, they started a GoFundMe to round up money for him. It raised more than $50,000. A local family also donated some violin-making tools from their late father. Schur is now using them to try to salvage some planks of wood that suffered smoke damage and make a new violin out of them. You can see these are, they're darkened. Kind of looks like somebody dipped them in coffee. He uses a tool called a block plane to shave off microns at a time. After a minute, he gets most of the coffee-colored stain off, but the entire shop reeks of smoke. He says it brings him right back to the fire. Kind of mentally, I think we're all wanting to get beyond this. As a business owner and as a homeowner that was hit pretty hard by this fire, I just can't wait to get back to a boring life. (laughs) His shop reopening will be a big step toward that, he says. He has a celebration planned for August 20th. And in the meantime, he's also been working at community events to get his name back out there. One was the recent Rocky Grass Festival in Lyons, one of the state's largest gatherings of bluegrass musicians. 
Every year, Schurer sets up a table at one of the festival buildings where he fixes instruments on the spot. Today, there's a line of performers that need help, including bass player Iris Hines. The neck of her instrument snapped in half after she dropped it. I just started crying instantly, and I was like, oh no, what am I going to do? She took it to Schur, who looked at the break and determined he could fix it with a little glue and overnight clamping. Heinz says it's a huge deal that he's back in business. Local businesses are like what keeps the heart of our towns running and going and having your people that you trust and just knowing that they're there for you is awesome, especially after tragedy. Schur partnered with the festival to give his services away for free as a way to give back to the outpouring of support he got. He says it's like a big family reunion here. It feels great. I don't know how to describe it other than it's almost like nothing happened, even though a lot has happened. After making his way through several customers, he takes a break and wanders over to take in all the music. I'm Matt Bloom, CPR News. Before we say goodbye, we have our next pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. It's the latest from nature and adventure writer Craig Childs. He contemplates the beauty and meaning of rock art in his new book, Tracing Time. I see rock art like deeds to the land whose signatures are the oldest. When you see images painted or pecked on stone, you're seeing the original inhabitants. And when you start looking around, you realize they're everywhere. Images of spirit figures and animals, depictions of battles, births, hunts, ceremonies, or geometric lines etched into stone. This land was claimed a long time ago, and you can read it right there on the rock. Tracing Time celebrates the ancient communication on the caves, canyons, and cliffs of the Colorado Plateau. Child weaves in his conversations with elders, scholars, and friends. Pick up a copy and join Ryan Warner and Craig Childs on September 6th in Grand Junction. They'll talk about the book and answer your questions. Free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. Again, the book is Tracing Time by nature and adventure author Craig Childs. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.